0: Your sleeping habits are ruining your ability to perform in almost all of the areas in your life. In fact, as I was reading this article, it said that what you need as the average teenager is 8 to 10 hours of sleep a night. I'm confident if we took a poll in here, the bulk, the bulk of you guys would be like, not even close. <laughs> yeah, right. But they do say that if you don't get the sufficient amount of quality rest, now there's a whole host of problems that come along with that. And yet the problem is that as time continues to go on, you'll see here in the graph that teams reporting bad sleep is increasing by the millions over and over. And yet the, uh, the actual need that you have is greater than what you can supply. There are many issues that go along with poor sleep. Now, when you get good rest, here are some of the benefits. The good rest can lead to improved cognition. You think better. You have the ability to think more quickly and to be more focused. Uh, learning consolidation. When you get good rest, the things that you learn during the day at school or at church when your pastor's preaching to you, uh, that stuff gets codified in your brain so that it can be retrieved at a later date. Emotional uh, Emotional stability. Don't look at your friends. When you sleep enough, you get greater emotional stability. You have greater control over your emotions. There's greater regulation. You have an ability to manage more difficult situations in your life. Um, Improve metabolism. You're looking to get fit. Well, one of the ways you can do that is by getting sufficient rest. Your metabolism functions properly and optimally when you have the right amount of rest. It improves physical health. If you have an injury, sufficient rest gives you the ability to recover more quickly. If you're sick, especially with COVID or something else, sleep and fluids, right? That's what they tell you. Sleep and fluids are going to help uh, expedite the process if you do those things. How about this? I found out when you get rest as a teenager, one of the things that it helps offset is risky behavior. So if you tend to do things kind of in an impulsive way, you're like, man, I'm just doing all these crazy things. I don't even know what's happening in my life. One of the things that might be behind it is you're not sufficiently resting. Here's another one. Um, actually, no, that was it. I take it back. <laughs> That's it. There's many things, actually. I, I, I found my list and I edited it to say, okay, sleep just sounds like this magic pill that does everything which I don't think it does, but you get the point here that sleep or rest is so central to your physical well-being that to not do that would be kind of catastrophous, right? You would be setting yourself up to fail by not sleeping sufficiently. In fact, that's not true only for your physical being, but that's true for your soul as well. Your soul was designed to rest, and to not have that rest is something that causes catastrophe. I like how Augustine said it so long ago. He's one of the early church fathers. He said, "You have created us for yourself and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you." Which is to say, your Soul has a God-shaped hole that nothing else can fill. And until you find that God-shaped hole filled with the Lord himself, you're always going to feel that sense of fatigue, that spiritual weariness and that unsettledness of saying, I don't, I'm not living the way I should. It doesn't feel right. All the things that I'm doing just doesn't quite suffice. And the idea here is that in the same way that your physical rest is of utmost necessity, your soul rest needs the same thing. But there's only one place where your soul can find rest. That, of course, is going to come from Jesus Christ himself. In fact, really, uh, our soul-satisfying rest is actually kind of complicated in the same way that getting a good night's rest is kind of complicated. We'll talk about that more in a second, but while we look this up here, I want you to take a look at Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at 13 verses tonight, and so we're going to move kind of quickly through a few of them, but I want to point you to where you can find rest for your soul. Now, if you're a Christian, you might be saying, Pastor Rod, I know the answer to this. Jesus is better. We just sang the song. I know the gospel. I have have a sense of what this is supposed to be. Yeah, I, I think that's true, But for most people, we tend to think about, if you're a Christian, you tend to think about the gospel as the diving board that springs you into the Christian life. You get on the diving board of the gospel, boom, you go into the Christian life, and bam, you're inside, you're enjoying the pool with all the other Christians. When one of the last things Pastor Wes prayed when we were around the table, literally one of the last sentences he uttered was something like this. Lord, help us to realize that the gospel is not the diving board springing us into the Christian life, but that the gospel is the diving board and the pool. That when you become a Christian, it's not like you graduate from the gospel, but rather you understand the way that it filters and feeds the rest of your life. The gospel is relevant for Christians and for non-Christians. If you're a Christian, the gospel is still relevant for you. And I want to show you that tonight. Again, our rest. How does this connect to our rest? Well, really, our rest is found by believing and applying the gospel. This is true again for Christians and non. Our rest is found by believing and applying the gospel. Let me show you that in Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 1. We're going to look at the first two verses together, and then we'll build our case here. Take a look at this first verse in Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, of course, it takes us back to last week. We're thinking about the rest that God offers to us. Therefore, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. He's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. Good news came to us just in the same way it came to the Israelites in the wilderness. But the message that they heard didn't benefit them. Why? Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Remember Joshua presents, Joshua and Caleb presents to the people of Israel while, in, while they were in the wilderness. They said, look, the, the promised land is ahead. Yeah, there's some big people there, but it's amazing and we can do it. Joshua and Caleb are gung-ho and they want to do it. But the others that went along with them said, don't do it. Those people are scary. They're going to destroy us. Let's not. Let's not go. And so God in frustration with those people, was ready to destroy them. If it were not for the intervention and prayers of Moses, God would have taken them out. And so here, the the preacher in Hebrews is saying, look, the promise of entering God's eternal rest is still available. In verse 1, he says this, and I I want to highlight this for you. Let us fear. Let us fear. Let us be afraid, lest any of you, talking to the congregation of believers, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. That's an interesting thing for him to say to, to potentially Christian audience, right? Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Well, think about this. When, 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 when the preacher's talking to the audience, he's making a comparison. Just as the children of Israel were promised rest, that was the good news, and promised to go into the promised land, he's saying, God is talking to you tonight or to you today, Hebrew audience, and saying, look, there's rest available for you in Christ, in the gospel. And they heard the good news, but it didn't help them. Because they stayed in the wilderness, and they defied God, and they said, we're not going to obey you. We're not going to go into the promised land. We don't think we can take it over. We think that you're not going to protect us. And so they rebelled against God, and God was angry with him. The Hebrew preacher is saying, look, listen, there's a parallel. They heard this great news from God, and they rejected it. Even though, as we said last week, they had Pastor Moses, they had all of these miracles that God showed them, God literally fed them from the sky, and he made, he made it rain in and out, double-doubles all over the place. God fed them. And they're like, no, I don't believe him. They had all the benefits and blessings, and yet they still did not end well. And so he says, listen here, you audience who's listening to this preacher, good news came to them, came to us rather, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Because like Joshua and Caleb, those people that heard did not have faith to believe in God's promises. If we're going to turn around and look at ourselves for a second, I'm saying rest uh, is found when we believe and obey the gospel. I want you to recognize that tonight, even as a Christian, there are certain realities about your faith that you need to embrace. And one of the realities about your faith is that there is an appropriate place for fear. That's why he says in verse 1, let us fear fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Reach what? Well, reach salvation. And this, he's saying, look, the Israelites failed to reach the promised land because they didn't believe. You might fail to reach your eternal promised land, your eternal salvation, because of that same failure to believe God. One of the things I want you to appropriately fear is point number one, fear rejecting the gospel. Fear rejecting the gospel. I found a website that detailed 10 things that teens fear most in 2022. I had to bite. It wasn't even BuzzFeed. This was different. I'm like, okay, this actually might be credible. So I looked it up and I thought, you know what, I'm going to share with you the 10 things that they say teens fear the most in 2022. And I'm letting you tell me whether or not they're right or wrong. So here's, she looks really sad. She looks a little afraid. (laughs) I thought that's kind of funny. Let's start with that. Okay. 10 things. I didn't put the website. I just took the took the numbers okay here, here's the 10 things number one they said peer pressure not fitting in agree disagree okay yeah I think that's a fear I think that's fair um, this one I wasn't quite sure what they were going at but okay you're afraid of that talk to your parents really not a whole lot to be afraid of uh, failure I get that <laughs> I keep seeing this meme emotional damage the guy, <laughs> this guy's always like oh you're a failure it's so funny so funny not PC, but so funny. Failure. I get that. I get, and I think that one's probably pretty true. Uh, some of you guys are afraid about the smog and the polar ice caps. You're afraid about climate change. Some of you guys are afraid of not having enough money. Maybe that's true for some of you. Uh, number six, let's go to number six. Uh, some of you are afraid of the future. You know, what's going to happen? Uh, what's going to happen with politics? What's going to happen with the, with the economy and everything? What about inflation? Uh, bullying, cyberbullying. This one I thought, okay, I, that one I get because you, be you could be a really great bully without ever getting caught and really easily detected. So I, I understand that. Here's one I thought was helpful. Lost identity. You know, you might not really figure out who you're supposed to be in life. You're kind of living in this weird stage where you're growing into a, a person, but you're still not quite sure who you are. You're kind of in this weird flux of, I'm, I'm learning who I am. I understand that. Uh, safety. You guys are afraid of safety? You fear safety? <laughs> you're afraid of being safe, maybe? <laughs> All right. Yeah, you agree with that. <laughs> Safety is so dangerous. <laughs> You're afraid of embarrassment. I think we all are. I mean, I have some really embarrassing stories from high school. Some of them you'll never find out about. Some of you've heard about. But, you know, I, I looked at the list and I thought, you know, I can improve this list. So I, I don't have 10 things for you, but I do have a list of things that I thought there's things that you should fear. So first, uh, if it wasn't already obvious, the first thing you should fear really when it comes down to it is cats. They look inviting, they look playful, but really they're trying to kill you. Point number one, fear cats. Don't write that down, just kidding. Um, But if if cats are really kind of something fearful and frightful, really you should distrust the people that own the cats. They have cats. There's something not quite right there worth calling attention to. Another thing you should fear, number three, uh, meat made from vegetables. Not real meats. Why even try and last on my list, uh, I thought I thought this, you should fear porta potties. <laughs> so those are the things I think you should really fear. <laughs> but really, what I want for you is not to fear the things that we mentioned, and my joking list. Obviously, I don't want to fear those things. But I really want you to fear rejecting the gospel. To have a healthy sense of realizing, man, uh, I, I've seen people who have wholeheartedly embraced the gospel and then ran away from it and threw it all aside and saying, I- I'm something else now. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a Christian. I don't care about Jesus. I don't care about the church. I want to do something else in my life. Fear rejecting the gospel. And this should cultivate within you a healthy sense of suspicion of saying, look, I know that I need help if I'm going to finish the race that, that God has given me. Which goes back to last week, right? Uh, exhort one another. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You need one another if you're going to finish the race. If you're rejecting the gospel, why? Well, because you only get one shot. You only get one shot at this life. You get one shot to respond to the gospel call. And for many of you guys, you've heard the gospel over and over again, and you come to Compass. Your parents come. They make you come to this. Man, I would love for you tonight to say, I'm not going to throw away my shot. Wink, wink. I would love for you to understand Hebrews 9 27. It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. There is no reincarnation. There is no second chance where you get to do have a do-over. There's no mulligans. There's no repeat the fourth quarter. This is it. You get one shot at life. When you die, you face God and there's all of your opportunity and I'm sure God will present to you at least some picture of your life and say, look, you went to True North, you had opportunities, man, you had opportunity to respond to the gospel. And that's not true for everybody. I remember when I was going to, uh, when I went to community college, I had to declare a major and like, I don't know what I want to do in my life. Like, I, don't, I, I had no clue. And I, I had a lot of emotional turmoil trying to figure out what do I major in that kind of hedges my bets where I can do a lot of things and not have to feel pigeonholed. I get it, that's a a difficult call. But really, picking a major isn't all that important unless you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that where your major determines really your direction. For most of us, you're going to get a job with a major that, oh, they're looking at it, yeah, check the box of the the master's and the bachelor's, fine. You're good to go. But when it comes to your salvation, there's not a, like, let me do a do-over, let me go back and change my answer, let me erase my, my answer and do a new one. No, you only get one shot. The promise of entering his rest presently, still stands for you. Don't throw that shot away. If that's, not, if that's not enough here, you also know the stakes are very high. You pick the wrong major, you can, you can do a do-over, you can have something else entirely different, you can go a different direction, you can have a new career in the middle of your life. Lots of people do that. But Scripture says in, in, uh, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, as, as I'm referring to this here, "...the promise of entering his rest still stands. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it." Failing to reach that rest is failing to reach salvation in Christ. Failing to reach salvation and grace. That's massive because you know, the stakes being high means heaven and hell are the options here. This is not, you can choose chocolate or vanilla. You could choose Hinduism or Buddhism or something else in between. This is a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Now stakes are indeed very, very high. My family has Knott's Berry Farm passes right now. And we always pass that, there's, there's, there's a row of those games where like you could do a three-point shot um, you could do, you know, you could hit the thing, and it goes ding, you hit the, the hammer on the, You know what I'm talking about, right? Those uh, carnival-type games. Uh, and I always see them, I'm like, ah, kind of half interested, half not. And then I start thinking, okay, well, how much is this thing going to cost? Like, there are various prices. I'm like, I don't want to spend money winning a toy that I'm going to hate. I'm going to lose either way. I, I lose by spending money, and then I lose by getting a toy that I don't like. We're going to end up creating trash and throwing it away anyway. So either way, I lose. And I kind of reasoned myself through this stuff. And I'm like, and then it costs us, let's see, how many gallons of gas it take to get here? Gas is like $17 a gallon right now. So I, All that. And by the time I think about it, I'm like, you know what, never mind. We're just going to go on the rides that we already paid for. In my mind, I go through those mental calculations. Let's hear you do something similar when it's like you go out to dinner with your friends. You think, okay, if we go to this restaurant, how much is my meal going to cost? How much am I going to spend for a tip? If I'm going to get a drink, how much is that going to cost? You do the same thing I do. We need to do this a lot more when it comes to calculating the eternal ramifications of our decisions today. We're great at forecasting a little bit ahead, but we should be much better at forecasting eternally ahead. Calculate the stakes of eternal life and eternal death. Here's the last one that I have under fearing, fearing, rejecting the gospel. Here's something I'm going to recall last week's verse. Hebrews 3:13. and I just cited it to you, but let me say it again, you're to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, deceitfulness of sin sin's deception, sin's pulling the wool over your eyes, sin's trickery, sin's ability to cause you to think something wrong and, dis- and cover its tracks. I thought about one of the things, speaking of fears, I thought about how crazy it would be if I was, I know this is weird that I would even share this, but if I was bitten by a snake and then my body went paralyzed, I would have to see the snake eat my body alive. Maybe I would die before he finished a job. But I thought about this. I thought, that's terrifying. But I'm like, that's a really good illustration of how sin works in our lives. Because when sin stings us, when sin bites us, it infects us and causes us to think, this is not a big deal. I can't feel my leg. So even though his, his body is kind of wrapping around my, my body right now to eat me, I don't really feel it. Not, big, not a big deal sin desensitizes me to the effects of its presence such that I think it's not a big deal. No one's going to find out. No one's going to really care. It doesn't really affect my life. Sin deceives me until sin consumes me. And often, I don't know until it's too late. You can be deceived into unbelief. In fact, I would argue this is what happens to everyone who turns away from Jesus Christ as their only hope in life and death. You're deceived into thinking, not a big deal. Sin bit you. It's now consuming you and you're buying the story of this isn't a problem. It's like that meme where that guy's sitting in the the room full of fire and he's like, this is fine. That's your life when you live apart from Christ. You are being deceived into unbelief, which is why, again, if we're going to quote Hebrews 3.13, this is why we need one another, because of our blind spots, our inability to see what's really happening in our lives. If we're not doing that, we're going to easily be misled and deceived into thinking, all things are fine. I don't need rest in Christ. I can choose my own adventure. No big deal. But all of these things should cause us to say, "I'm, I'm afraid of rejecting the gospel, I know that I'm a sinner and I could be deceived. I know that I've only got one shot. The stakes are very high. I don't want to make the wrong choice, which is why I think the author says, look, you need to fear, which is, again, interesting considering you're to Christians. Again, let me tell you, the warnings in Hebrews are like guardrails. If you're a Christian, you're going to see the guardrail as you ascend the mountain and say, I don't want to hit that guardrail and send my car over the edge. I'm going to take this turn more slowly. I'm going to do everything I need to do so that I don't crash my Christian life. If you're not a Christian, you're going to hear these warnings and say, whatever, I mean, come on, don't be such a prude, don't be such a this, it's fine, I could do my life as I want, I've been okay this far, not going to be totally bad. Christians will hear the warning and respond to it. And this is how God's going to keep you on the path. He's going to warn you against apostasy and against departing from the gospel by saying, look, fear rejecting this message fear missing out on the rest that is offered. And this is how God's going to preserve us and keep us on the path of righteousness. In this next section, he's going to say, look, uh, this is how you stay on the path. You fear rejecting this, lest any of us fail to have reached that. But then he also says, look, for we who have believed, check this out, we who have believed, we enter that rest. We are entering that rest that God provides. And then he quotes Psalm 95, as, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Those who disbelieved. Those who disbelieve, they're not going to enter my rest. But those who do believe, man, they will. And then the preacher says, look, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. He's making a comparison between the rest that God enjoys in Genesis chapter 2. We're on the seventh day after creating everything around us, the seventh day God rested. And so he's making a comparison between the kind of rest God presently enjoys to the rest that you can enjoy as his believers, He goes on to say in verse four, for he has said some, he he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he has said, they shall not enter my rest. And so he's making a comparison saying, look, those who don't enter God's rest that God presently enjoys are those who disbelieve. But that rest is presently available. That rest is now open. The seventh day of rest is now available to you and it's available for some to enter it. For those who formally received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. We covered this last week. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's repeating himself like a good preacher. And then he goes on to say, look, the, the, the physical land rest that God promised to the people of Israel was not the point. That was part of the promise God gave them. But he said the land was really just a forecast and a foretaste of the spiritual rest provided through his Messiah. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now notice here, the reason why they were rejected is because they disobeyed the command of God's good news. God commanded them, go to the promised land, enjoy the rest that I've granted for you. Their job was to faithfully obey that command. They chose not to. The author, the preacher of Hebrews is saying to you now, look, young person, obey God's command to rest in his eternal provision. You have opportunity right now to enter that rest. Don't reject it. Point two, I put it like this, find rest by obeying the gospel. Find rest by obeying the gospel. This is your only hope. This is your only chance. This is your true spiritual rest. Was anyone at the 9 a.m. service this last Sunday? A couple of you? Did you feel the earthquake? There was an earthquake on Sunday morning. No joke. No joke. There was an earthquake. As I sat there, I felt the rumblings. It was really subtle. So if you weren't paying attention, you might have missed it. I felt the rumblings and began to imagine in my head. It happened really fast. I wasn't distracted for the whole time, I promise. I started imagining, okay, what happens then if this building starts collapsing? What am I going to do here? What's my plan? I thought, well, first I want to protect my MacBook, so I'd close that and put that away. <laughs> Take my wife with me. At the same time, both MacBook and my wife, so it'd be the same, not one or the other. Um, And then, depending on how devastating the damage is, I might have to direct people to the path of safety. Because if you look around, there's a lot of doors. And most of these doors take you outside, but some of them are trickery doors. They don't take you outside. They take you to the usher closet or the the media room or the green room over there. There's doors that can be a bit confusing. So I was thinking, OK, if the building's coming down, I probably would be able to help people get out of the building safely. And so as the building is shaken, briefly, quickly, I thought that's what I would do. I'd have to stand up and start yelling at people. I might go and dive to save PM from the falling speaker system. In my mind, I nailed it, and he was so thankful. Um, In my mind, I also got crushed and I was dying. He's like, I owe you my life, Pastor Ro. That's what Pastor Mike said to me in my my envisioning of this event. (laughs) I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. In my mind, though, I was thinking, okay, I would have to yell at people like, no, go over here. Let's go this way. There's safety that direction. And I would take them out there in the courtyard because that's what I was thinking. The safest place would be the courtyard. We're going to go out that side, follow my lead. I would yell at the top of my lungs and then just run that way. And women and children first. And you know, like kind of like the Titanic and just <laughs> heroic all. I don't know. It would be amazing to see that happen. But imagine with me, if you will, people who are like, ah, I don't trust that guy. I'm going to go this way. He's the high school pastor. Who are we going to trust? <laughs> high school pastor. Let's go this way. I would have to yell at them and say, no, please, let's go this way. Obey my commands. We're going this way. This is the safest path. This is the best place for us to go to be saved from this this earthquake. There is a right way and a wrong way to deal with the earthquake. You can obey the commands of the guy who knows the building or you can follow your instinct and do something entirely different. The gospel is not just an option that you could say, I like that one, I don't like that one. The gospel is saying this is the only option you have if you want to truly live Notice here the urgency in the voice of the the preacher in verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice. Today if you hear his voice. He says this multiple times. Young person, today if you hear his voice. Don't harden your heart. Today could be your last day. Don't harden your heart. You need to obey the gospel today. Jesus, when he came on the scene in the gospel of Mark, He says the time is fulfilled, The kingdom of God is at hand, and here's here's what he says is the response. Repent and believe in the gospel. These are the words that Jesus himself said to every single one of us, and this is what he wants us to do. Repent and believe the gospel. Are you a Christian? Continue repenting and believing. Are you not a Christian yet? Repent and believe in the gospel that Jesus offers. Let's break that down a a quick second here. Find rest by obeying the gospel. First of all, let's talk about repentance. Repentance is a word that is, I mean, I, I, I understand it could be confusing if you don't have a, a, a history in the church. Repentance, I like the way that these guys describe it, refers to a comprehensive, a total, an altogether change of one's orientation toward following God. It means to neglect or deny your old life, the life that you used to live apart from Christ, and to say, I'm following God. It's like that old Rob Biagi song, I'm following Jesus. Denying yourself, following Jesus Christ in order to do what he commands. I mean, the Israelites didn't stumble once. The Israelites stumbled multiple times. They rejected God over and over again. They complained about the food. They complained about Moses. They complained about God's leadership. And what God would wanted them to do is to stop what they were doing, repent, turn toward God, say, confess, Lord, we are wrong, you're right, please forgive us, don't smite us, help us. And I think God would have been gracious. If it were not for the repeated rebellion against him, I think God would have changed the story for them. Young person, it's time to Repent. Stop, stop fighting. And if you are a Christian, I'm willing to bet that there's something in your life right now where you know the Holy Spirit has been working on you saying, this isn't right. This needs to change. The answer for you is the same as it is for the rest of us. Repent. Repent. You want rest? You want to know what it is to have a clean conscience and a heart that is light and joyful? Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your self-leadership and turn toward Jesus Christ. Well, once you start looking toward Jesus Christ, what do I do? Well, you believe. You believe the act of believing or trusting something on the basis of its truthfulness and reliability. When Christians say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, we're making a claim about everything in this life. We're saying, I mean, let me, let me try to categorize it this way. We're saying Jesus defines reality for us. Jesus is the truth. He is truth incarnate. If Jesus were to say Your eyes deceive you. The sky is actually bright yellow. I would say, okay, I trust Jesus. I don't know how that works. I'll figure it out, or he'll explain it at another time. But we trust Jesus to be the one to whom we can look to for all things, life, death, and everything else in between. I want you to repent today. I want you to believe on Jesus Christ today. That's what the author of the Hebrews is doing. He's saying, look, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The most famous verse in all the Bible says, look, God loved us in this way. For God loved the world in this way. That's what the word so means. It doesn't mean like God loved you so much. We use it that way, right? Like a superlative. God loves you so much. And that might be true. God does love people. But what this verse is saying is, for God loves us in this way, that he gave his only son. It's monogenes. I thought that that mattered to you. That whoever believes in Jesus should not perish, but have eternal life. Those who perish are those who disbelieve, those who refuse to submit to Jesus. Those who believe are the ones who are granted life and eternal life. In other words, you might think of as rest and eternal rest. That is the gift that God offers you. Repent and believe, trust him, and he will change you and rearrange you. And if you're a Christian, this doesn't change. The depth of your understanding of the gospel does change. It's like, it's like when you take your siblings to the kiddie pool, you know, you let them play in the two foot and they splash around. That's what it is to be a new Christian. You're getting in the pool and you're kind of splashing around and understanding. oh, this is what it feels to be wet. This is amazing. I love the pool. But as you get more mature and as you start learning what it is to swim in the pool, you go deeper and deeper. If you're some people in this room, you jump off of really high diving boards and you do flips in the air and make a big splash. That's your, the part of your thing. You get really skilled at that because you get really comfortable with the water. As you become a more and more mature Christian, you learn to play in the deep end of your faith. But make no mistake, it's still the gospel. It's still repenting and believing and trusting Jesus Christ with everything in your life. And that never, ever, ever ends, but it does give you rest. It's resting. It is giving your soul the kind of rest that it needs. I, I wanted to add one more thing to this because I thought, okay, I, I need to find a way to kind of, I don't know. I- I'm not improving the gospel, but I wanted to say one more thing on this here. You find rest by obeying the gospel, repenting of your, fa- uh, re- repenting of your sin, believing, uh, demonstrating your faith in Christ, And then I put this one here, receive, repent, believe, receive, working out your faith in response to God's promises. Follow me outside. And I say, guys, the the building's collapsing. Follow me outside to the courtyard as the earthquake ravishes our building and lights are falling down and TVs are falling off the pillars and the pillar itself is falling down. There's fires everywhere. Follow me out to the courtyard. And so you're rattled, right? But you're following me. So we go out that corridor there. We make it out to the courtyard, and you're safe. And I can assure you, look, you guys, we're safe. We made it out alive. We're, we're, we're doing great. Some of you might still be tempted to be thoroughly shaken to the core and say, man, uh, this is so terrifying. I don't know what's going to happen. You, know, you might be thoroughly terrified, although I can assure you, hey, you're safe. You're safe. You're safe. You're in the courtyard. We're protected here. This is, this is stable ground. I can assure you till the cows come home. But for some of you, you'll still be like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I'm really safe or not. I, I still feel vulnerable and scared. And that's how a lot of you live your Christian lives. You're so concerned about uh, being right with God that you over- introspect yourself and start saying, well, I'm, I am still, still sin in this way, I still sin in this way. And a young person, that's true. You will be a sinner for the rest of your eternal days. The fact that you care is a good sign. So when I talk about receive, I'm talking about a few things. There's a million things I could say here, but let me just give you a couple. First, when I say receive, repent, believe, receive. Receive the forgiveness God offers. If you are a wicked person, congratulations, you're part of the club called humanity. If you've sinned, congratulations, we all know what that feels like. If you have any bit of self-loathing because of what you said, what you've done, you've embarrassed yourself in front of people, congratulations, we all know what that feels like. But when God promises to forgive you of your sin, that is a promise that means everything, past, present, and future, no matter what you've done, is cleansed. It's gone. It's forgiven. It's over. Jesus nailed your cross to the sin. Try that again. Jesus nailed your sin to the cross. Pretend I didn't say that last part. And that means it's gone. Jesus' death guarantees your forgiveness if you will repent and believe. You can receive that forgiveness knowing full well that all the guilt and shame that you've acquired will never be held against you, at least not by the one who ultimately matters. Here's another cool one. Receive his adoption. One of the reasons Jesus went to the cross is so that he can adopt people to himself. When you are saved, you are added to God's family. You are a prized member of the family of God because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. His blood is your access, your gateway into God's family. So when you say father to God, that's legit. It's not father in the same way Jesus uh, the father is the father to Jesus, he's your father in that he's adopted you. Not only he's made you as, his, as creator, but he's adopted you into his family. And I keep repeating this to you, maybe you need to hear this again. God doesn't kick people out of his family. If you're in, you're in forever. And you're stuck with us. For those of us who are Christians, who love Jesus, you're stuck with us. We're gonna be together for the rest of our eternal days. We Might be separated for a few short years if we die before Jesus comes back but then we'll be together again together again forever. Receive God's forgiveness, receive his adoption. You're accepted, you're loved. I was talking to someone a few days ago and I was trying to explain why the Christian message is better than the world's message. And I was saying, look, the world tries hard to make a big deal out of you. Saying, look, you're, you're amazing, you're wonderful, you're awesome, and you've got value. And I'm thinking, well, what is that value based off of though? If you're not a Christian, you have nowhere to ground that value judgment. In other words, why was Hitler wrong for murdering 11 million people? If there's no God, then you can't ascribe value to people because they're not valuable. They're just a random, accidental chance thing. It doesn't matter if you snuff somebody out. But in the Christian worldview, we understand that people's value is not contingent upon their ability or anything else except for the fact that they are made in God's image and therefore they possess infinite value. And if you're saved by Christ if his blood is what was shed to adopt you into his family, you are all the more so. You are all the more so trophies of his grace and therefore all the more valued by God because of his son's blood. You are valuable. You are precious in God's sight. If you're in Christ, there's there's just nothing better. There's nothing better than realizing that you're right with him. He loves you. This last one here, rest. Jesus says, come to me all who labor. All, who, all of you guys who are working hard, all of you who are heavy laden, you're weighed down by sin and by the world and by the things that you're doing. Come to me all of you who labor and I will give you rest. Now, I gotta let you know the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 11 is slightly different than the word in our text. Same root word though, same root word. Both mean rest. Jesus invites you to rest. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Is it hard to follow Jesus? No doubt. But there is a rest and a joy that comes with following him. And I'm begging you, young person, if you don't know Christ, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You're not gonna find forgiveness, adoption, rest from some other source. Jesus alone provides this for you. And you can stop hating yourself. You can stop fighting against yourself. You can stop giving yourself over to the whims and fancies of your friends who have so much power over your life and so much influence that you're miserable for that. When you submit yourself to the, to the Lord, the one who's made you, the one who is better, you will finally be free. You'll be free in the best way possible. And you're gonna finally have rest. Forgiveness, adoption, rest. We could say a lot more. But let me close out with these final verses here in the, in the last part of Hebrews chapter four. This is the section that you guys all know. You might've memorized these verses, but I want you to feel the, I don't know, the underlying threat. This is kind of a serious passage right here if you take a look. Don't harden your heart against the truth, but here, here, here's what he goes with. Take a look at verse 11. He's closing his argument, this preacher, at least in this section. He says, Let us therefore, with everything we just said here, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, uh, let us therefore strive, work hard to enter that rest. <laughs> work hard to rest. That's a weird way to put it, but he says, that's what he's saying. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I, if I could reword what he's saying, hopefully not, hopefully not misinterpreting him, pursue rest in the gospel, so that you don't act a fool and reject God. Pursue living according to what the gospel says, and then you won't do this. You won't won't run away from God. You won't drive your Christian car over the cliff. Pursue Jesus Christ and all that he offers. Strive toward that. Strive to rest in who Jesus is, and you won't fall by that same sort of disobedience. And then he goes on to say, look, for the reason why the word of God is living and active. The word of God is alive and not dead. The word of God is still at work. So everything that he just, um, him as a preacher, everything he just taught to you, he's saying, that's still valid. That's still true. That's still uh, available. The promises God offers and the punishments he threatens, those are still available and still true. They're just as true today in 2022 as they were 2,000 years ago. The word of God is alive and it's functional, it's active. And and not only that, it is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God penetrates us. It changes us. It challenges us if we let it. And so he's saying, look, the Word of God still has a lot of power, and it has the ability to judge you. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from God's sight, the judgment of his Word, but all people... Man, woman, child, are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's an awkward sentence. It's an awkward thing to say. Naked and exposed. Think about that. Terrifying. I would never want anyone to have to go through that horrendous experience of having to be exposed to somebody. Even if you go see your doctor, it's weird. But Jesus, or the preacher here, is saying that uh, God, when you stand before God, there's not going to be a place for you to hide. You're not going to be able to put a jacket on and be like, oh, you can't see me, I can't see you. God is saying, my word will judge you. There is a threat here. There is a threat and an encouragement. The threat is, look, don't trifle with God's word. Take him seriously. The encouragement is the word is just as powerful and just as active today as it was yesteryear. Trust him and know that he's going to cling to his word. I could say in this third point, point three, read your Bible. I could say that because the Bible's powerful. And I I, I believe that. But I decided to go a different tack because what I see here in this text is the author of Hebrews saying, I'm warning you, don't trifle with the Bible. Don't trifle with God's word. Listen carefully. Be intent to listen. This is a big deal. God's word still has power and sway. But I also thought of you guys who have been at Compass for your whole life. And you're like, yeah, I memorized that in Awana Pastor Ron. That was a good verse, you know. And really, I haven't felt the power of the Bible. I mean, I believe God's word has some power, and I haven't felt that. So I put it my third point like this, in the context of resting, um, believing, and applying the gospel. I put it this way, point number three. I think I need you to fight to let the Bible read you. There's that striving aspect, right? Fighting. I'm fighting to enter that rest. I want you to fight. When you read the Bible, not to read it as your uh, stale, old, crusty textbook. I want you to fight to read the Bible in such a way where you're letting it read you. That's a different experience. There are some things that you fight yourself to let happen because you know it should, right? There's some things that you have, like you have to motivate yourself to do certain things because you know I should do this. It's necessary. Like brushing your teeth and flossing, which I have a streak now going. Like 13 days going or whatever. Every day last 13 days. Okay, something like uh, like getting a shot. I mean, you go to the doctor, you get a shot. Like, you know, I'm totally fine with blood, but I still just, I I just have to, like, talk myself into it. Like, this is fine. They're supposed to do this to me. Uh, I just got my blood drawn a couple days ago, and the guy just shoves the thing in there. He makes you hold the thing and does this thing, and then he shoves it in your arm, and I see my blood just trickling out. I'm like, this is fine. This is supposed to happen. (laughs) This is the way it's supposed to be. But you make yourself do those things because you know there's a, there's a purpose. There's a good thing behind it. Uh, another thing you might force yourself to do or to let happen because you know you should, you might eat sushi because your friend makes you. Oh, this is an act of love. This is totally weird. You're supposed to cook food, but I'm doing this as an act of love for my friend. They, they make me do this. Or maybe you've undergone surgery and someone has taken out your wisdom teeth. It's like, oh, that's really scary. Or maybe you're one of those people that get put under... Um, and you have those really funny videos where you're all drugged up and you say funny things. One of the things that I did willingly years ago is LASIK. You know what LASIK is? They stick a laser in your eye. They cut off a part of your eye. They correct your eye with the laser, and then they cover your eye again, and they kind of glue it back together, and they send you home. It's a terrifying experience. And then they force your eye to stay open. You can't blink. That was torturous. Imagine having your eyes forced open while there's a laser pointing at it. and then it smells funky too. It smells like burning flesh because that's what's happening. It's an awful experience. And there are some things that you fight yourself to let happen because you know you should. And all these things hurt, even the sushi. It's a family bought a a water filter that you put in the sink. Flavors way better. It's amazing to use for coffee and tea and all those things. But I also found out that the, the, the filters that, that, that you use for your water can remove, remove impurities like bacteria, chlorine, metals, and all those other things. It tastes better and it's healthier for you. Your heart needs to go through the filter of Scripture if you want to get the best out of your heart. Your heart must be calibrated and filtered and challenged with the Word of God, um, no creature, oh no, that's not the one I want you to see here. Verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than the two edged sword. I need you to realize that the, the Bible needs to judge you, and you want it to. Now, let me tell you one thing that has been always on my heart, and I continue to come back to this. Your feelings are liars. Your feelings are liars. Most of the time, your feelings will mislead you, unless you're taking your feelings of scripture and saying, Lord, what do I do with this? I'm upset about this, I'm, I'm sad about that. Let scripture Tell your emotions what they should feel. And if you're saying, well, my emotions are are, are feeling this and I should feel that, you're wrong then. Scripture is sharper than any two-edged sword and is judging your emotion. It's telling you that's wrong. You need to change. Your thoughts, as I said earlier, can also be deceived and cause you to disbelieve God, which is why, again, you need to go back to Scripture and let it discern you. You need to filter your thoughts, your emotions. This goes back to last week as well, uh, examining your outputs. Filtering your heart through Scripture and letting Scripture challenge you. And if you're doing it right, it will be painful. It will cause you consternation. It'll be discomforting. But if you let it, it will cut through the fog and the noise of your heart, and it will judge you rightly and help you to live more appropriately. Lastly, you should know that God's going to use that scripture as a means by which he will judge all of us. The scripture that God has given us, especially the ones that you're aware of, are the very things God's going to use to say, I'm holding you to a standard, the standard of my word. And unless you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you don't have an excuse to offer God. For those of us who are in Christ, we will be judged in a different way. We'll be judged for rewards and judged for commendation. But that word will still be the, the measuring stick. That word will still be the very uh, standard by which we are judged against. You would accept your responsibility for what it says. So one of the things that these studies suggest about the reason why you sleep poorly, take a guess. Why do you sleep poorly according to most studies? Your smartphone, your best friend, your worst enemy. One of the reasons they suggest, and there's a lot of them, but one of the reasons they suggest that your smartphone is one of your enemies in your sleep is because it emits blue light And blue light, as you know, is a spectrum of light that mimics the sun, and therefore it sends signals to your brain that suppresses the production of melatonin, which is the sleep hormone. It helps regulate your circadian rhythm, and it makes you feel sleepy and put you to bed so that your body stays in that rhythmic state. And so they say if you expose yourself to blue light too late at night or uh, at the wrong time, uh, that blue light can do a lot of things, like damage your vision, impair your memory, give you cataracts, cause obesity causes global warming on top of that. uh, Blue light also stimulates your alertness and causes you to wake up more than you're supposed to be uh, awake at that point in time. Notice this guy in the middle. He starts here, but it keeps getting worse for him. There's other things that they, they talk about all sorts of issues that relate to blue light. That blue light is great when it's the right time for it, but if you get it at the wrong time, that blue light can be devastating to your rest. And so... I've known this for years. I've heard about this, you know, I listened to some podcasts that talk about blue light. Never done anything about it until recently. And I started thinking more seriously about it when Apple deployed their feature where they can make your your screen orange, call it nighttime or night mode or whatever. And so I thought, okay, maybe there's something to this. Maybe there's actual studies that support this because big tech's willing to change things and do things differently in order to meet their clientele, meet their user base and help them be healthy or whatever. So I bought a, a pair of blue blocking glasses Actually, I have a couple pair at this point. Because they say that blue blocking glasses, when you use them before sleep, are actually helpful in promoting your your rest and your sleep. And so I've been doing this now for a long time. This is my thing. I wear blue blocking glasses. That's what these are. Um, You notice me late at night. If I come to my house late at night, I'm 99% of the time wearing my blue blocking glasses. That's part of what I do to help protect my sleep so I can be the best pastor in the world possible. Knowing this, though, doesn't help me unless I do something about it, right? It's a really simple analogy, but you might know all the benefits of the gospel. You might know that the gospel gives you rest and acceptance and family and forgiveness and all those things, but it does nothing for you until you obey the gospel, until you apply the gospel. So if there's anything I want you to walk away with, I I really do want you to rest well in your spirit. I want you to find that satisfying rest that Christ offers, but you'll never get to it. You'll never enjoy it if you don't believe it and apply it. If you want spiritual rest, young person, if you want to enjoy true rest, believe and apply the gospel. Let's pray.